If you're visiting today, we've been working through the, the book of first and, books of First and Second Samuel um, since I think the beginning of the school year, and uh, today we're in in Second Samuel 18 and 19. I think it is, but. Um, for our scripture reading, we're not even going to read that. The, the passages are just so long. If you want to really get the most out of the sermons and our time together, I just can't encourage you enough to, to make sure that you read the, the scripture verses uh, passages ahead of time because they're, they're really long. We just can't read the whole passage. In fact, we're not even going to read. I'm going I'm to be, we're going to work our way through, through the passage, but, but uh, for our scripture reading, we're going to be reading out of Psalm chapter 18. Um, which is a psalm of David. I'm going to begin with chapter 18, verses 1 through 6, and then 31 to 35. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Listen to the God, the words, listen to the Lord's holy words. It says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I'm saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompass me. The torrents of destruction assail me. The cords of Sheol entangle me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Skipping to verse 31, for who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except for our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made, me, made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. Make God richly bless the reading of his holy word. Be seated. Heavenly Father, as we enter into today's passage, I pray that you would give me the ability to speak clearly. I pray that you would give, that you'd limit distractions, you would give my brothers and sisters the ability to hear your words and your encouragement. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You know, I remember growing up in Sunday school. I, I don't know if some of you are old as I am. Remember the felt storyboards and the, the children's storybooks? Um, I remember learning about David's bravery, and bravery, his faithfulness, his courage, and, and David is certainly somebody to be admired. And, and during this series, at least while we were in the book of 1 Samuel, all the reasons for admiring David were sort of reaffirmed for me. Um, in fact, the first time script, the scriptures speak of David is in 1 Samuel 16, verse 18. He's introduced by one of Saul's servants as a skillful musician, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. That's the very first description we have of David in, 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 in the scriptures. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, we learn that even as a youth, he had the ability to, uh, a capability of killing even bears and, and lions. Later on in 17, we learn that along with his fellow Israelites, we watched David bravely defeat and kill giant, the giant Goliath. When you get to 1 Samuel 18, the women, we see that the women, the women of Israel are singing songs about his greatness and dancing in the streets, celebrating David. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 8, we see that Saul 
um, places David in command of his entire army, in, in, the command, in, in charge of the entire army of Israel. And, and wherever David goes, he is successful in battle. There, there is no doubt about it. There, there really is. There is something special about David that people were attracted to, that people wanted to follow, that people admired. He was a king, he was a friend, he was a warrior, he was a shepherd, a musician, a poet, and a composer. But most of all, David serves to us as a foreshadow of the coming Christ. He's a picture of Jesus. But here's the thing, as, as likable as David is in, in the book of 1 Samuel, I think it's fair to say, at least for me, he is almost just as unlikable in, in, second, unlikable in 2 Samuel. I mean, like, like everyone, everyone, like everyone that, that we know in 2 Samuel, we begin to see below the surface. It becomes clear that David is an extremely complex figure, and he is as deeply flawed as, as anyone. Now, although he's still a foreshadow and a picture of the coming Messiah, like the rest of us, he is also in need of the kind of forgiveness and the restoration that only the Messiah can offer. Here's the thing. We, we live in a time, in a place in the world where masculinity is under attack. And I think it's fair to say that David's an easy target. And while some of the criticisms are valid regarding the attacks on masculinity in today's world, is why some of these, 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 these issues are valid and they need to be responded to, they need to be addressed, they need to be acknowledged, we must still be intentional in teaching our young boys how to be men. And masculinity still needs to be affirmed. And throughout this series, David has been portrayed as a model of masculinity, a model of strength that is to be admired. Take, for example, um, we read part of Psalm 18 just, just a few minutes ago. In Psalm 18, it tells us about David's physical strength, his skill, his speed, his agility, the, all of these physical attributes that have been given to him by the Lord. And it also tells us how these, these physical attributes have been combined with his courage, valor, and years of, of training and years of exercise. And all these things together have made him skilled in battle. They have made him an expert in war. They have made him a great warrior. And while David's strength and skill and courage and bravery are all good things, while they are all worthy of admiration, while they are all honoring to the Lord, according to Psalm 18, they are not... Let me repeat it again. They are not what makes David great. Look at Psalm 18, verse 35. It's the last verse we read just a few minutes ago. Now, this is also repeated if you read the passage for next week. It's repeated in 2 Samuel 22. But in Psalm 18, 35, it says, look, look what David says. It says, you have given me the shield of your salvation and, the right hand, and your right hand, Lord, supported me. Look what else he says. He says, and your gentleness made me great. Your gentleness made me great. The Lord's gentleness made me. You see what the psalm, you see what the psalmist is saying? He is saying it, is, it, it was the Lord's gentleness that made David great. 
You see, David understood that the Lord in his sovereignty had endowed him with all kinds of talents, skills, abilities, and attributes that the Lord had used him to accomplish some pretty incredible things to unite the nation. But he also understood that it was the Lord's gentleness towards him that made him great. And it's very important that we don't miss the very fine distinction of what's being said here. The psalmist is not saying that David's gentleness is what made him great. But rather, it is the Lord's gentleness that made David great. And there is a difference between the two. You may be asking, well, what does that mean? And how does that work? What, what's the distinction? Why is this distinction important? And how does God's gentleness make somebody great? Well, here's how. As we've already acknowledged, David was an extremely complex figure. Regardless of all the incredible things that were accomplished through him, David was fully aware of his own flaws, his own sin, his own rebellion, his own failures, of which there were many, if you've been here. I mean, this has been really hard for a preacher to stand up and preach through some of these passages. Um, but David was fully aware that regardless of his flaws, regardless of his sin, regardless of his rebellion, regardless of his many failures, God had been and continued to be gentle with him. If you've been here through this series, you have seen for yourself that David had done some pretty terrible things. He had failed to lead his family. He had failed to lead his nation as he should have. He's acted in ways that he shouldn't have. He's, he's failed to act in ways that he should have. And he was responsible for the suffering of others. You see, David understood that God could have at any time rejected him and cut him off from the throne. And he would have been completely justified in doing so. Yet instead, even though he did not deserve it, God was gentle. God was gracious with him. God treated him with, with mercy. And you know what? There are certain moments in David's life as well as in today's passage, where we can see that God's own greatness, God's own gentleness towards David, we can see that it has changed David. It has taken root in his heart. It is God's gentleness towards David that has shaped the way he wields his own power and authority as a king. In our passage today, we can see that as God was gentle with David, David in turn is gentle with others. Even or perhaps even especially with his enemies. And that is what makes him great. If you read the passage of yourself, and if you're like me, it seems as if, I'm just going to admit this up front, when I first read all, the, all this stuff, it, it seems to me that many of the decisions David makes and his demonstrations of mercy are actually motivated by political compromise by expediency, by necessity, or, um, because he needs to try to reunite the nation. So it seems like David's being manipulative. You know what? I, I, I really struggled with that throughout the first half of the week. But then I began to think about that there, are, there may be some truth to this. But if you think back throughout this, this series, you can see that David has a well-established track record of being merciful and kind and gracious towards his enemies. He just does. 
Maybe you remember uh, more than once David happened upon a vulnerable Saul. He could have ended Saul's life violently. He could have brought an end to all the injustice that had been being carried out against him. Yet over and over and over again, David refused to to lift his hand against God's anointed. Over and over again, David refused to seize the kingdom for himself and was instead gentle. I mean, for years on end, in humility, David waited for the kingship to fall to him. For years, he waited for the Lord's timing. For years, he, he waited for the Lord to act on his behalf. Then again, another example. In, in, in 1 Samuel 25, there's a story about the foolish man Nabal. David and his men had been protecting Nabal's sheep and, and providing security for, for his, his fortune and what have you for, for several years. And then Nabal, um, Nabal refused to, to, to pay him for it. Nabal was arrogant and he was foolish and he refused. And David reacted, his initial reaction, he reacted in a very natural way. He told his men, hey, strap on your swords. And he was going to go and, and, and kill Nabal. But the moment David was confronted by Abigail and her pleas for mercy, David quickly stood down. David responded gently. He stood still and he waited for the Lord to defend his honor. There's another example. And then there's the story of Mephibosheth. If you don't remember, Mephibosheth was the grandson of King Saul. He was the son of, of Jonathan. Um, and, 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 he, and remember, he was crippled. Even though David had become king, a large contingent of those who had opposed him believed that Mephibosheth was actually the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. Now, while Mephibosheth was not a physical threat to David, um, his, his mere existence posed a social and a political threat to him. And while it was common throughout the ancient Near East, to, it was a common practice in the ancient Near East to simply eliminate anyone who was a potential threat, David was gentle towards Mephibosheth. So, there's three examples that long before this, David demonstrates a gentleness. Now, regardless of his flaws, there is a striking pattern in David's life. Because the Lord had been gentle with him in regard to his own sins and failures, he is now gentle with others in regard to their sins and failures. And he's not just gentle with those who are a benefit to him or those who, who, who favor him. He is gentle even with those who are opposed to him, those who are his enemies. What I want you to see is that while David is a mighty warrior, while he is brave and powerful and effective military commander, it was God's gentleness that made him great. We see it again in today's passage. Uh, we, we just do, and, and I just don't have time to go through all the examples in today's passage, but, but to set it up, let's just go back to where we were two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we were in chapter 15, and, and David's son Absalom rebelled against David, and, and he won the hearts of a large percentage of the people. He successfully turned majority of the people against David, and he commandeered a large portion of David's military, and, and he began to march towards Jerusalem to, to kill his father. 
It was clear to David that he had lost control of the kingdom. It was clear to him that they were about to ensue a civil war. And so instead of that, he fled Jerusalem. He, he crossed over the Jordan. He went out in the wilderness towards Mahanaim. Now, while David was leaving Jerusalem, while he was leaving Jerusalem, um, everyone else in the kingdom were hedging their bets. <laughs> Everybody else in the kingdom was trying to figure out which side they ought to choose. Everybody else in the kingdom is sort of scrambling and they're, they're trying to, many are trying to capitalize on the situation, pick who they think is going to win this battle. But the majority of, so, so there's a lot of that going on, but the majority of the people remained in Jerusalem and sided with Absalom. All right? Now, if you fast forward to today's passage, the battle's over. And like I say, we really fast forward through a lot here. The battle's over. Absalom is dead. David is now returning to Jerusalem. He's reestablishing his reign as king. He's reasserting his authority. Now among those who stood alongside David throughout this whole ordeal were his two nephews. Their names were Joab and Abishai. Remember that. Joab and Abishai. They were the sons of David's sister Zariah. All right? Now, if you go back to, all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 10, you'll see that they are painted in a very favorable light. They're extremely loyal. They are, they are fearsome in battle. They're strong. They're brave. They're experts at war. They are mighty men. In fact, they are manly men who are oozing with testosterone. And, and they, they use this to defend God's anointed king. I mean, these guys are great warriors. And David has made them the commander of his army. All right? mainly Joab, but both of them in charge of his army. Now, not only did they win the battle for David, not only did they kill Absalom, the enemy, they are now in the return at David's side, continuing to defend him. All right? Escorting him back into Jerusalem. And upon their return, all the people who had sided with Absalom, <laughs> all the people who had sided against David, now are panicking. They're, they're beginning to scramble. They're, they're beginning to try to do a little bit of damage control. All right? In 2 Samuel chapter 19, verses 8 through 10, look at it with me. It says, Now Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled, now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom... Whom, he, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. And so there's, there's, there, what this tells there was lots of conflict going on. There, there was arguing, there was uncertainty, they were scrambling by lots of people. And, and as I said, I don't have time to go into all, all the, the different examples here, but in our passage two weeks ago, when David was fleeing from Jerusalem, it's in 2 Samuel 16, a relative of King Saul's by the name of Shimei. He came out as David was leaving Jerusalem. He came out insulting, cursing, and throwing stones at David and, and those who were with him in, in, in this caravan. He came out, he was calling David a worthless man, and he accused David of evil. And he literally made a celebration of David's humiliation. Now, remember there's two nephews, Abishai and Joab, right? 
the sons of the sons of his sister. At that time, Abishai, it's in chapter 16, verse 9, one of David's nephews, remember what he said? He said, Why should this dead dog curse the Lord, my Lord the king? He said, Let me go over and take off his head. In other words, he wants to go over and kill him. And then David says this really strange thing, especially weird to me a few weeks ago when I was reading. He said this strange thing. In chapter 16, verse 10, he says this. He says, his response was, was, what do I have to do with you, you sons of Zariah? And then he went on to say in chapter 16, verse 11, he said, leave Shimei alone. Just leave this guy alone. Let him curse. David refused to let Abishai, his nephew, lift a finger against Shimei, his, his enemy. And then in verse 13, it says, as David and his men went on the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, and he continued to throw stones and fling dust. So this was a really over-the-top gross insult, all right? So that's what happened when David was leaving Jerusalem. Now David's returning, all right? And if we fast forward to today's passage, the battle's over. David and his men are returning to the city, and the first one to show up is Shimei. And the one who had been cursing and throwing stones comes cowering on his knees, begging for mercy. Now, if you read the story like I did, Shimei, he is a groveling, conniving, sniveling snake. He just is. Yet once again, Abishai, David's nephew, in verse 21, Abishai, the son of the sister of Zariah, he says, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he has cursed the Lord's anointed? But again, David refuses and says, once again, that very strange statement. Verse 22, what, do, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? I mean, these are the two men that stood by him the most. David says, what have I had to do with you, you sons of Uriah, that you should this day be an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? Again, I do. I get the feeling that Shimei is a smarmy snake. And there's, there's just nothing that I like about this guy. But the first thing the anointed king of Israel does upon his return is he extends mercy and he pardons a snake who says, I'm a sinner, please forgive me. And then in verse 23, David said to Shimei, he said, Shimei, you shall not die. Not only that, he gives him an oath. He swears by the Lord that, that, that the Shimei is not going to die, that he's not going to bring retaliation against him. In other words, David says, if I retaliate, may the Lord hold me accountable. The fact is, David's gentleness towards Shimei was a declaration to everyone who had opposed him. I mean, if God's gentle with Shimei, then he's going to be gentle with, with, with everyone else. Here's the thing. While Joab and Abishai, his two nephews, why are, they are great assets in, in, in times of war, it appears that they are every bit as much liabilities during times of peace. And it seems to me that by this phrase, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? It appears that David is 
a bit exasperated by their unwillingness or their inability to refrain, to, to restrain their aggression, to tur curb their, their wrath, to, by their inability to be gentle. It, it seems clear by this phrase that David is trying to distance himself from his nephews. He's making it clear to them and to everybody else that there is a difference between he and, and, and the sons of Zariah. He's wanting to make it clear to everyone that, that, that Joab and Abishai are more severe than he is. And what the writer of 2 Samuel wants his readers to see is that while Joab and Abishai and, and, and David, they're all accomplished warriors, only one of them is great. Only one of them knows when and has the ability to be gentle. And all of this helps to explain why David did what he'd done just before this. Remember, when, when Absalom rebelled against his father and, and turned the nation against him, one of the very first things he did was he put a guy by the name of Amasa in charge of, of, of his military, all right, in charge of this rebel army. And now that the, this civil war is over, Absalom's dead, um, David demotes his two nephews. He demotes um, the, his two nephews, and he puts Amasa, the, the commander of this rebel army, in charge of his own army. He replaces these two guys who had stood beside him with, with an enemy. And like he did with Shimei, he seals his promise to Amasa with an oath. He asks God to hold him accountable if he fails to do what he says he would do. And in doing so, and by his gentleness, we're told in verse 14 that David swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah as one man. In other words, David, by his gentleness, David won over the people. So once again, it was David's gentleness that won over his enemies, that won over the hearts of Israel. But here's the thing, long before that, it was the Lord's gentleness that had won over the heart of David. So, the greatness of David is not just found in 1 Samuel, but it is also found in 2 Samuel. The greatness of David is not that he won so many battles, that he was a brave warrior, that he slew the giant. No. The greatness of David was that as a man, he slew the giants of his own heart. He slew the giants of arrogance and pride and selfishness, unrighteous anger, of petty disputes, of personal offenses, of private comforts and personal preferences and personal offenses. And the weapon of battle was nothing other than the gentleness of God. You see, the gentleness of God is the mechanism for our change. It is acknowledging and understanding the gentleness in which God has treated us that enables, not just enables, but empowers us to be gentle towards others. Now, I don't think anybody in this room has ever been placed in charge of an entire nation. But many of you have been given the responsibility of overseeing or leading a workplace environment, a classroom, a neighborhood, a church, your family, or your extended family. And all of these, these organizations can be incredibly complex. They can be very difficult to manage. Now, I know some of you younger kids, I mean, you're still young. You've never taken 
the role of leadership in, in an organization, but the fact is all of us have at the very least been blessed by the Lord in that you have been made a part of or a member of one of these groups. And whether you are called to lead or for the time being simply a part of one of these groups, we need to understand it is the undeserved gentleness of God that has been demonstrated to you that in turn empowers and enables you to absorb the injustice that may come your way. That enables you to be gentle towards those in your life who are not particularly entitled to it. It is gentleness that makes you great. It is the Lord's gentleness towards you that makes you great. You know, something I often see is that while some people have an impulse for justice without mercy, other people have an impulse for mercy without justice. It's possible to lean too heavily into justice, but it's also possible to lean too heavily into mercy, into gentleness. And you know what, this is a common battle between spouses I hear all the time. One is the enforcer, the other one's the softy, you know. But both are necessary. And it takes wisdom to administer properly. And here's the thing, one should never be administered without the other. They go together. They go together. In fact, his life is always messy. Life is never black and white. When there's conflict that cannot be resolved, which is often the case, we are almost, and, and I mean, think of the conflict that you have in your life right now, right? We all have it at work, family, school, neighborhood, whatever it is. Whenever there's conflict that cannot be resolved, which is more often than not the case, we are almost always going to feel the tension between love and discipline, between forgiveness and, and justice. While we should always do our best, it is a rare that we're ever able to completely resolve the tension or hit that perfect wheelhouse. If you read even today's past, if you read First Second Samuel, or even if you've just read today's passage, you can see that David doesn't always model this well. I gave you an example where he did, but he doesn't always model this well. He doesn't always handle things perfectly. He doesn't always handle the way, things the way he should. But we must remember that David is only a foreshadow of the Messiah. He is he's only a foreshadow of the one who does handle things perfectly. He is only a foreshadow of Jesus. You know, David is indeed a, a giant slayer. He is every bit the man of war that Joab and his nephews Joab and Abishai are. But he surpasses them, not by being more severe, but by adding to his strength the virtue of gentleness. The reason is because he's learned gentleness from God himself. So David is both strong and gentle. He can wield his strength when the moment calls for it, but he can also restrain his strength when, when, when gentleness is called for. I, I want to encourage you to spend some time in Psalm 18 this week. Um, 
while it is in many ways a, a great tribute to God's work in and through the life of David, um, there is much in this psalm that as John Calvin writes in his commentary, he says, there's much in this that agrees better with Christ than with David. You see, in other words, Psalm 18 is actually a, a greater, more accurate description of Jesus than it is of David. When the apostle John was on the island of Patmos, he was given a glimpse into the glory of Christ. And what he describes to his readers is an exceptional example of masculinity. What he describes to his readers is a picture of Jesus who is strong and gentle, who is capable and compassionate. In Jesus, he saw not only a man, but, but he saw the Almighty. He heard a voice like the roar of many waters, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Revelation 19 describes him as one who sits upon a white horse, one who judges and makes war, one who will strike down the nations and rule them with an iron rod, who will tread the winepress with the fury and the wrath of God the Almighty. But in Revelation 5, he describes him as a gentle and sacrificial lamb. And here's the thing. He is not sometimes one and then sometimes the other. He is both at the very same time. And he does it perfectly. He's a lion and a lamb. He is majestic in strength, and yet he is gentle and lowly. And he is the one who's laid down his life for those who have opposed him, those who have insulted them, those who now turn to him, those who do not deserve it. My friends, that is our only hope. That Christ is merciful. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. It is our desire that you would be glorified, that you would be honored, that we would be encouraged and we would be motivated by your gentleness and by your justice. May we be strengthened by that in Jesus' holy name. Amen.